Wow, what, why is this significant? But then we can also read it another way, and that is that I think Scripture also is able to read us, if you like. It asks questions of us. We don't just ask questions of the text. And what I mean by that is it has the power to challenge and to shape our very hearts. We believe that here, that uh, there are, you know, the Bible is not just an interesting book. You know, there are many interesting books that have been written. This one here isn't just one in the mix, okay? I've heard Harry Potter's a good read. I, I don't read it myself, but we're not opening Harry Potter today. We are looking at God's Word. We are looking at the Bible. Um, and it's important as we get into our second week, we're in a uh, series in Romans, that we remember that. And that is because Paul comes in hard. He comes in hard and heavy at the beginning of what we're going to look at today. And he gives the Romans a reality check, a big reality check. And the reason that's important is that we need to remember when we read something we find hard, when we read something that we find challenging, we don't just skip past. We don't just pretend we haven't seen. But instead, we get in line with it. We don't expect Scripture to get in line with us. Does that make sense? Uh, and we need to remember that because today, that's where it starts. Um, and uh, it's important that we don't downplay it. And I think Paul knew that. Paul knew that for us, as humans, our bias when we read something that's challenging, our lean, almost our default, isn't to accept it, isn't to own it, but instead often it's to try and pretend it didn't happen, or it's to point a finger the other way, or it's to try and minimize it's not really that big of a problem. And Paul says at start here that we do that at our peril. Um, I have a close friend, and he's got a younger brother. His younger brother was, uh, when he was five years old, managed to find his way into the kitchen to the uh, to the cupboard under the sink. Um, now, any uh, mothers in the room, I guess, will know exactly what that means. Uh, tell me what you find in the cupboard under the sink. Corrosive things. Absolutely, Walter. Any other, any other in, uh, I was about to say ingredients. That's definitely not what you find under the sink. That's probably the problem. Anything else? Boot polish. Boot polish. Good. Soap powder, bleach, white spirit, paint stripper. And that was the drink of my good friend's younger uh, brother. He, he, he's, his mom came into the kitchen one day and found him sat there with the top off the white spirit somehow. I think it had been put in a Coke bottle rather than an actual white spirit bottle, sat there with it kind of all over him, crying his eyes out. They didn't know how much he had drunk. But they knew that it was bad. There was a serious problem. Um, now, I imagine that moment for, uh, for Carol, who's my friend's mum, all sorts of things probably ran through her mind. Feelings of guilt all my life. Maybe even feelings of shame, like, how did I not leave that, you know, the protective clip that we all find really annoying? How was that not engaged? How has he managed to get in here? All of these things. But now imagine for a moment that um, Rob comes downstairs, and Rob is uh, their dad, and he comes down and he says... What's the matter? What's the matter? She says, look, look what happened. He goes, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't feel too bad. You never normally leave that cupboard open. It's fine. Just let's get a glass of water. In fact, Calpol, I've heard, always does the trick. Let's do that. Don't worry. It's, it's a small thing. What would anyone say in their right mind? They would say, what are you talking about? Start the car. We're going to hospital. This is serious. This could be life or death. 
And I suppose as we start today, um, just as my friend's parents had a crisis on their hands, just as they needed to take it very, very seriously, that's Paul's message to us. He says, stop minimizing, stop excusing, stop pretending. And he does that because the only way for humankind, the only way for us to truly flourish is if we stop trying to put almost a sticky plaster on the huge wound that is human sinfulness. We need to face up to sin. We need to face up to the effects it has on each other and on our world. And that is what Paul does. And the the good news is that as we get there, um, there is a vision of hope. That's where we're heading to today. There is a vision of hope. Like as we head through a dark tunnel, there is a light waiting. There is a shining jewel that is on the backdrop of uh, a dark picture, which is human sinfulness. And it is sparkling. But the reality is... We have to be honest about where the darkness comes from first. We have to be honest first along the way to be able to know what to do about it. Uh, So that's where Paul's starting. So number one, doctor, we have a problem and it runs deeper than we think. I'm going to read from Romans 1 to 18 uh, and it should come up on the screen behind me. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, we may, may, since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse." Drop down to verse 28. Furthermore, uh, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they, so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of others who practice them. Okay, here we go. Um, I said we start heavy. It's important to acknowledge first who Paul is speaking to. There are two groups in Rome at the time. Uh, You've got um, the unbelieving Gentile community. They have uh, no faith in God, no care for God, and they're living just to please themselves. Then over here you have another group, and they are, if you like, the moralizers. These are those who feel like they are morally good. They're the Jewish crowd. They're proud. They're self-righteous. They're self-confident. This is like the typical religious person, okay, the religious crowd. They think that their works somehow make them right before God. And he's, and Paul aims the next uh, two chapters at both groups of people, at both of them. And uh, this is his message to both. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of you. What is this word wrath? Okay, I don't know about you. I don't, we don't use it super often. Uh, but it's used to describe God's righteous and just punishment on wrongdoing or sin. To understand it, it takes an acknowledgement first that 
God isn't like us. So God of the universe, he is the creator. He's incapable of sin. Uh, it's just his character. He's utterly, completely good. He's pure. It's, it's just who he is. Us, well, it comes as no surprise that we can't say the same about us. Utterly good, morally pure, all the time, without sin, without any flaw, no one is fast putting their hands up and correcting me here. That is because we are utterly different in that. We are broken. And that perfect justice is being revealed. So God's perfect justice is being revealed against godlessness and wickedness. What does that mean? What is godlessness? Well, Paul speaks here, it's a disregard for God's rights. This a destruction almost of a vertical relationship with him, which in turn always leads to what? to a destruction of our horizontal relationships with each other. So Paul calls that wickedness. So godlessness leads to wickedness. And that wickedness is a disregard for human rights, if you like, for, for love and for truth and for, for justice. It's almost like we forget these things and it, and it becomes like nothing to us. It's really a breaking of what Jesus called the two greatest commands, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor. It's a breaking of both of them. You know, we, we see this in, played out in the world in big and small ways all the time. Just, uh, just last week, I think it was, or maybe just over a week ago, in Las Vegas, I'm sure many of you had seen and heard the news. There was uh, an older guy who uh, had an old retired man who had a love for guns, okay? And he took, I think the count was, over 35 automatic weapons, or 35 weapons, many of which were automatic. And he took them to the top floor of a hotel. And then at the top floor of the hotel, he smashed all the windows out, and he took aim fire for, they reckon, about 11 minutes on a music festival, with people who had nowhere to flee, nowhere to run, nowhere to really hide. What is that about? What is that about? They're saying that they can't find, they're struggling to find a motive, but all they know is 50 people are dead and over 500 are injured. In moments like these, let me tell you, it's really easy to say, man, how terrible, how awful that that's going on out there that we hear about. But Paul's really clear that the problem, it doesn't lie out there. The problem lies in every human heart. That is where these things ultimately come from. As Matt said last week, this isn't a popular idea in our 21st century culture. Um, we all like to think that if you can just dig deep enough that we're all pretty nice, really. We're all pretty good guys and girls, really at heart. If you dig deep enough, you'll find it. But I'm not sure that fits with how I see life being played out in the world, to be honest with you. I'm not also not sure how, that that fits with how I see my own heart, if I'm honest with you. Um, on Tuesday, I was uh, walking from the office where um, in the center of town to uh, have a meeting somewhere else. And if you remember this week, it has been windy. All right. Anyone cycles? It's not good. Not a good week to cycle. Yeah. So, so windy. Okay. So I'm trying not to be blown over and I hear a massive crack. And I turn, and I'm like, what was that? Like, I turn around, I'm looking around, I thought someone had threw something at me. And I turn, and right next to me, there's this beech tree, okay? Actually, I've got a picture of it. So you go, this beech tree. Huge. This crack actually ran, you can see the bottom of it, how big it is, but it actually ran to kind of my shoulder height. You can't really see it from the photo. So I'm stood there next to this tree, and every time the wind blows, it kind of 
creaks even more, and then it blows back, creaks even more. I'm like, I don't really know what to do here, especially as, if you go to the next photo, it's right overhanging someone's brand new, nice Mini Cooper, okay? Not a car that I would choose, but it's still uh, somebody's new car, and I thought the last thing they want is to come back and find that the roof has been caved in. So I thought, you know, being uh, the uh, respectable citizen uh, that I am, I called the police non-emergency number. I thought I was going to be there for about half an hour. Actually, they answered really quick, just in case you know, if you ever see anything going on. It's really worth to call. So they answered really quick, and they were, they were, I thought I was pretty helpful. They were pretty helpful. We got it sorted out, and next day, actually, that tree is no longer there. It's been cut down. Um, but basically, the tree needed cutting down. However, when I looked at it, I thought, this looks like a pretty nice tree. This looks like a pretty healthy tree. This looks like a pretty strong tree to me. I, I couldn't, I'm not, a, I'm no tree expert. No, no the word for that. I'm no tree expert, but I was like, there didn't seem to be anything wrong. But I found out this tree had a hidden disease and it was rotting from the inside out. So up, it wasn't getting the nutrients it needs, which meant on the inside the rot was set in. So where the tree needs to be strongest, it was actually weakest. It was an accident waiting to happen. So when Paul says here that we have a depraved mind, when he says that we're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, man, he's unpacking here a doctrine, which is a Christian truth. He's unpacking here the doctrine of, of human depravity. Uh, that at its core, our minds and our hearts are darkened to the things of God. And it always leads to destructive behaviors. Um, is everybody like this all of the time? That list I read just read out is pretty strong, isn't it? Is everyone like this all of the time? Well, I'd say no. Are we all capable of it some of that some of the time? i say definitely yes. We're all capable. We're like the beech tree that on the outside sometimes we look, can look fine. We can make ourselves look pretty presentable at, at times, can't we? We can, we can hide actually some of the bitterness sometimes we feel with a smile. And we're able to do that. But the truth is, under the stress and strain of life, that sometimes when trial hits, almost like the heavy winds on that tree, sometimes we go crack. I don't know about you, but sometimes I do. And what overflows isn't very pretty often of the time. So, firstly, we have a problem, and it runs deeper than we often like to acknowledge. But secondly, uh, the medication isn't working. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Paul's clear, this sinfulness takes hold of our lives in different ways, all of us. Um, and it's more than just doing bad things. Okay? I'm not just talking about that. We all almost try to self-medicate. Let me uh, read from uh, verse 21, jump back into the passage. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. It leads to an over-desire for earthly things. 
In other words, idolatry. That is what it leads to. See, we were all created to have purpose. Okay, we are. Um, Tim Keller calls it that we are telic creatures, and what that means is that we are created to have purpose. We are created to live for something. Something always has to capture our imagination. We are not like a pet cat that just will sleep all day and is fine. You know. There, some of you are like, I would like sleeping all day. You do like sleeping all day, but you also like to have something to live for. You like to have hobbies. You like to have things that capture your imagination. We have purpose. But what we've all done in different ways is we've exchanged the glory of an immortal God for other things. And for the Romans at that time, it was images that were made to look like human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. I mean, I've got a few here for you. They're quite pretty, I'll give them that. But here's what they're not. They're not worthy of worship. They're not worthy of your adoration. They're not they're worthy of your, I suppose, soul love and, 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 and attention. And you guys might be sitting there thinking, yeah, I know, I, I don't give them to that. But the reality is that was what they did in their time. And I think we read that and we think, man, they're crazy. And that's because... And I do, because I look at that and I think they've, they were made to worship the immortal, the all-powerful creator God. And instead they said, no, nah, you, you guys will do. You guys will do. The God who stands unrivaled, has no equal. Not only that, he doesn't say, I'm just a God who's distant, but he also says, I'm like a father and you're like my children and I love you. And now nah, still we prefer these guys here. It's crazy. I was thinking about it uh, as an example. Um, imagine how, uh, this is how I think God must feel if this scenario is played out. Imagine uh, a mother with a child. And I've, I've heard that over the first probably good few years, but definitely first year of the life, that child is solely dependent on that mother for their very life. You know, for the, they can't eat for themselves. They are solely dependent on their mother. And then just imagine as that child grows and all the things that a mother will do to protect and to care for. And then imagine as that child gets that little bit older, instead of one day, you know, maybe Mother's Day comes or something, instead of one day actually saying, thank you so much for all you've done, like the gratitude, like I see now, I didn't used to see, but I see now that, man, you've gone above and beyond for me. You can imagine, like, the nice speech, maybe, that they might make to their mother. But imagine they don't actually give that speech to the mother, but instead, they turn from the mother, and they pick up their favorite toy. Their favorite toy, and they pick it up, and they say, thank you so much. I mean, I wouldn't be here without you. You've done, you've done everything for me. You're, you're, I, I just love you so much. I can't, I can't put you down. I, I just want to hug you. I want to spend all my time with you. Can we go out for dinner sometime? Like, what would the mother think? Well, they'd probably think, oh my life, like we need to call a doctor. Like there's something going on here. But the reason it is crazy is because that toy has done nothing for that child. That yes, a toy is good. A toy has its place. The mother might be like, I even gave it to you to enjoy and, and I'm happy you to play with it and enjoy it. But here's what it's not. It's not worthy of your adoration. It's not worthy of your thanks. It doesn't give you, it's not worthy of those things. In fact, if you do that, like, it's just going to let you down. Like, hi, I'm over here. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm the one who's cared for you. I'm the one who's loved you. I'm the one who's brought you into this world. 
I'm the one who loves you more than anyone could ever imagine. That thing was made in China. That thing isn't actually that special. It doesn't deserve your adoration. See, everything has its place, and, and we laugh at that. And I know I kind of ham that up a little bit, but we laugh at that. But the reality is that happens every day. That happens every day. And to find out where, you just need to ask a few questions. Where do we often go for happiness? What do we depend on? Where do we look for purpose and significance? Outside of God. See, they might not be winged creatures. They might not have scales. They might not be made in China, if you like. But they are equally incapable of saving us. They are equally incapable of... Um, of satisfying us. They're equally incapable of meeting our deepest desires. And see, an idol can be anything that you look to to bring you ultimate meaning, purpose, security, and satisfaction outside of God. The thing that you feel life wouldn't be worth living without, that is probably it for you. See, some of us, I think, know our battles with idols. Some of us know almost our weak spots. Um, but the reality is these things can stay hidden pretty easily. They can be hard to almost get your hands on. It's almost like to recognize. They almost can be slippery to us. It's the nature of what they are. So I've got a few questions. I'm going to come up on the screen. I'm going to read them out. And just in these moments, just have a think. What would this be for you? What is my greatest nightmare? Ask that question. Not nightmare you've had, but what is your greatest nightmare? What do you worry most about? What if I failed at or lost would cause me to feel like life isn't worth living? What keeps me going? What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things get bad or difficult? What do I think most easily about? Where does my mind go when I'm free? What preoccupies me? What prayer, if unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I most proud of? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would make me really happy? You know, often these things are best worked out with a trusted friend, someone who can see the things that we can't. Um, but interestingly, I think when you've got an idea of what these are, things start to make a little bit of sense. Because often our lowest moments, the moments where we felt most crushed, um, is when our idol, the thing that we are actually secretly living for, has left us still wanting. Because they never ultimately satisfy. They always say you need more. Um, growing up, I'm the eldest of uh, three. So I'm one of three. I'm the eldest. Uh, I've got a, a younger brother who's three years younger than me, and there's a, young, and a younger sister who's three years younger than him. And growing up, I was always told uh, that as the eldest in the family, your job is to look out for your brother and sister. Your job is to care for your brother and sister. Your job is to protect your brother and sister. And I heard this many times from parents. I heard this from grandparents. So I remember it. Um, it wasn't something, that, a burden that I asked for, but it's one that if you're an elder sibling in the room, you kind of get. It's just, it's what happens. A few you're nodding, a few you are. And it was all fine most of the time. Um, but one Friday at our local park, everything went a little bit wrong. Uh, and here's what I mean. I, 
I distinctly remember me and my brother, we were down there and it was just another day at the park when there was another group of older lads at the park. Um, and this day they decided that today it was their park and that we didn't have any place in their park. And I remember being at the top of this slide and my brother was kind of quite far away on these swings. We were kind of doing our own thing for a moment. And I looked up and I just remember seeing my brother on the floor with some older, probably at the time I was 12, he was 9, so he had probably a 14-year-old lad just standing over him with his, with his fists clenched. And in that moment, I can tell you that everything inside of me wanted to run down that slide, wanted to run across there to protect him. But that isn't what happened. What happened was I just stayed where I was. And I actually stayed rooted to the spot. In that moment, what, felt, what it felt like was that almost like there were some weeds that had a hold of my ankles. Um, and I didn't do anything. They talk about fight, flight, or freeze. And in that moment, I froze. I shouted over. I said, El, come on, let's go. My brother's called Elliot. He gets himself up and he gets himself kind of free. One of them pushes him again and he kind of runs to me. And we walk home. Uh, we walk home, and I remember he didn't say a word to me all the way home, about 10 minutes, 10-minute walk. Um, why do I tell that story? It's just, I don't think it's a story that's unique to myself. I think many people with siblings would have some similar stories. But I tell that story because as a regular incident to two brothers growing up, it wasn't just for me because I couldn't shake that day for years and years to come. Um, it was almost like uh, I had a shame that kind of shrouded me everywhere we went. Uh, I remember swearing to myself that that would never happen again, that I would never do that again, that I would always act. Um, it was a feeling of regret that I just remember carrying around. See, I'd subtly been told all my life that an older brother does this, an older brother protects, this is what an older brother does, this is how to be a successful older brother. And it was almost like my moment came, and I failed, and I failed, and I felt it, and it lived with me. What do you think my idol was? What idol had been created from that moment? Any thoughts? Anger. Anger. Anger was definitely an emotion that I felt, that I didn't act on. But it was really, at a deeper level, it was living up to my parents' and my family's expectations and other people's expectations of me. And actually, deeper than that, it was more about not wanting to appear weak to anyone. Um, the truth that I needed to hear, well, the truth I needed to hear was that my value and my worth aren't dependent on a show of strength to anybody. And in fact... It's found in who Jesus says I am. And in fact, it's through embracing my actual weakness and the fact that I fail at things that ultimately I find life and truth in him. But let me tell you, it took me a long time to understand those things, a long time to even hear those things. And beneath the surface of my life, for many years, there was an aggressive streak that every now and again would go crack and it would bubble up and it would, be, and it would be shown to the world. And that is what idols do. They dictate and control your behavior. You see, there's, that's one, that, that was one for me. But for, for you, I don't know what they are, but it's important to get 
our hands on. It's important to be able to recognize them. Here are four very common themes. I wonder if you ask yourself, is it power? Is success? Is kind of winning? Is having influence over others really, really important to you? Is approval? Is it affirmation from others? Is it others' love? Is it relationships that is key for you? Is it comfort? Is it almost privacy? Is it a, a, a kind of avoiding stress at all costs, a carefree life? Is that what you're almost living for? Is it needing a freedom? Is it control? Is it different to that? Is it control? Is it, is it always needing certainty? Is it always needing your standards to be met perfectly? Do you always need to be the one who's in control? Whatever it is, the reality is the self-medication that we're using when we go to our idols to expect them to somehow save us, to somehow cure us, it's futile. It's futile because it only leads us to darker spaces, more hopelessness and despair. It's been pretty heavy so far. Is there an answer? Is there hope on offer? Well, I want to put to you today that we need a different treatment. We need a different treatment. That the only place to find peace, the only place where true hope is found that will free us, is to acknowledge the scale of the problem. It's to ignore and to resist the temptation to go to other things, to soothe or other idols, to give us worth when they can't ever do that. And it's to ultimately come to Jesus. Uh, chapter 3, verses 21, it gives us a picture of what the, ultimately the truth that means that we can live this way. It says this from verses 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. It's knowable. To which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came because of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Basically saying it doesn't matter whether you're lost and you don't know it, or whether you almost think you're sorted, but really you're still a complete mess. He's saying righteousness is given through faith in Jesus, that it's not earned, it's given. Paul's saying that you're sick and your sickness should ultimately lead to death. But there is a cure. The rotten tree need not be chopped down and die. That even though you've turned from me, the living God, to worthless idols, to things that can never satisfy, even though you've done those things, even though you've Use my gifts and you've disregarded the one who gave them to you. There is hope on offer. It's not complicated. You see, it doesn't involve trying to earn your way back into God's good books. You just need to put your trust in Jesus. See, if we were all like the infected rotten trees like I showed before, Jesus would almost be like the only healthy tree to ever live. Yet he was cut down because of our rot. He was cut down in our place. And the reason Paul is able to say that you were justified freely, it's crazy that you were justified freely, is that his perfect life satisfied the wrath of God that we incurred. That in Jesus, he took the due penalty that each one of us had come into us. And it's through his blood that we find life. See, this is the light at the end of the tunnel. This is the sparkling jewel on the backdrop of a very dark picture that 
Paula and I have just painted. And it's hope. It's hope for a world for everyone who comes to him. Let me finish with this. Um, who can tell me who this is? Anyone, any thoughts? Chris Froome, well done. Chris Froome, the winner of four Tour de France's. Okay, he races bikes. For those of you who uh, aren't into bike racing, I really am, so I can't assume everyone is. You might never have heard of this guy if it wasn't for the fact that one day in Kenya, in a very small clinic, uh, an unknown doctor managed to find this very rare disease that he had. In his early years as a pro, this guy, this guy would have great days on the bike followed by awful days on the bike. And his sponsors were like, what is going on? Like, if you're going to race in front of the rest of the world and represent us, you need to be more consistent. And he got known as Inconsistent Chris, okay? And the reality was, he was sick. He was very, very sick. They had European doctors from four different countries who were trying to sort out what it was. They were throwing all sorts of medication at him. And he was lapping it up and he was taking it. He was trying to work out what it was. And it made him pretty even more sick because he actually was, wasn't hitting the right spot. Like they didn't know what it was. What did he have? He had a tropical disease called Bilharzia, okay? You can't contract Bilharzia in Europe, which is why none of the doctors in Europe, all these world-class doctors, none of them had a clue. They were giving him the wrong medicine, really. This is uh, this next image here. This is basically what it is. It is a parasite, wait for it, that feeds on red blood cells. What is the one thing, if you're a professional bike racer that you need more than anything else. By the way, red blood cells carry oxygen to the body, okay? And they say that the Tour de France is basically probably running 25 marathons back to back to back, okay? So you need as much oxygen to your blood as physically possible. Yet these things were feeding on it. So, of course, he's a talented guy who'd have a good day followed by an awful day. And it wasn't because of him, it was... Because of these nasty-looking uh, critters. But Chris Froome grew up in Kenya. And on a trip home, he wasn't even meant to see the doctor. He just got into a, fam- a conversation with a family friend. And this guy, this family friend, this doctor said, I need to check you for this. And the reality is you can't contract it anywhere else. So none of the other doctors were looking for it. As soon as he did, they diagnosed correctly. They gave him a bout of antibiotics. And within the space of, the reckon, two to three weeks, he was cured. And the rest of his history went on to win four Tour de France's. Most recently, won the Welter and the Tour in the same year. No one's ever done that before. Those of you who don't like bike racing, I'm just telling you, it's impressive, all right? So just nod and believe me, okay? It is incredible what this guy has managed to do. Why do I finish with that story? Well, when we run to other things to comfort us, to find significance, to find value, to find our worth. We're like Chris Froome, taking bouts of medication that are never going to treat the root of the problem. But when we acknowledge before God just how much we need him, when we acknowledge that it's actually God himself that is the only treatment that can truly fix and cure and touch the deepest parts of who we are, then it's in that that we get our lives transformed by him. It's in his death and resurrection as we accept what Jesus has done for us. We get given a hope and a future. You might not go on to win four Tour de France's, but the future is bright. We get to live for him. 
We're not stuck in our sin, in our mess any longer because he lifts us up out. Would you stand with me and I pray? In a moment, we're um, going to take up uh, an offering. Um, but maybe if you'd all, everyone would close your eyes with me for a moment. I just want to help us reflect a little bit on what we've heard. For some of you in here, this might be the first time you've heard something like this. Um, and to you, if you're not a Christian, I want to say that this is, though it is a, a heavy subject, what I presented to you is that to the, to the worst problem that mankind has ever faced, to the one that often we try and run away from, there is an answer, there is a cure. And today may be a day that you humbly acknowledge your need, not just your want or curiosity around, but your actual need for Jesus. But for the rest of us, we need to acknowledge that though we know this truth, often we don't live in this way. We don't live in the light of this truth. We need to acknowledge the depth of our problem. We need to accept that the medication isn't working, that we run to idols to soothe our wounds, but really they just leave a void. And we need to, again, afresh today, accept the only treatment that really, truly ever works. And that is receiving Jesus' love afresh today. So Lord, I pray that you would be present with us. Lord, I thank you for your death and your resurrection. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, once we are, once we are honest about, Lord, how far we have, we have gone, how far we have fallen, Lord, the grip that sin has on our lives, Lord, that we are able to acknowledge that there is a cure. We are able to acknowledge, Jesus, that you came so that we don't need to live in darkness anymore. Lord, you came so that we can lift our heads. So as we get to live with you, we get to see our lives transformed. Not from the outside in, not in a superficial way, but in a deep, connected way. Lord, thank you that you start with our hearts. And Lord, as we respond to you today, would you be putting the finger on the places where maybe we've, the things we've gone to, where we've ignored you, Lord, I pray you'd be revealing idols around the room. Lord, I pray that deeper than that, you'd be tearing them down. Oh, Jesus, we come to you. Put our trust in you. Afresh tonight. In your name, pray. Amen.